I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. Hello and welcome to the Early Education Show. This is Lisa Bryant, all by myself today. The other two are are taking breaks for much needed purposes. So it's just me interviewing Deanne Carson from Body Safety Australia. Welcome to the show, Deanne. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Um, I suggested that you'd be a good person on this show because there's... Um, some issues that are concerning me that are happening more often in early education care services over the last year we've had a few cases where um, people have been employed as educators and have not been safe to be in that role there's been a few criminal prosecutions and some of them are going ahead yes um, at the moment I know someone was charged today as we speak with some more cases. It's not clear whether he offended against the children he educated, he was educating, or whether it was something that happened outside of his childcare centre, out of his education and care centre that will probably come out in a trial. But are you aware that you know this seems to be we seem to be having a spate of cases in early education and care at the moment yeah I have noticed that probably over the last year but particularly in the last three or four months there has been a lot of reporting in the media about uh, early childhood educators being uh, arrested or um, or even charged on child sex offences, both uh, contact offences and uh, online exploitation of children. And it's really concerning. Do you think it's because we're getting better at catching um, perpetrators or do you think there's something happening in our sector where people are dropping their guard and letting these people become employed in our centres or involved with our centres? I think that it's really difficult to answer that definitively uh, because there is no baseline to take that from. We we are both getting much better at uh, spotting grooming and, uh, and intercepting uh, grooming behaviour, uh, but I... I also think that uh, as we tighten standards and expectations in so many spaces, uh, I think that predators who are looking for access to children are trying to find the, you know, the weakest link, so to speak. And it may be that early childhood education is it at the moment. Certainly I've noticed when I talk to educators about the topic that sometimes they feel that our services are safe spaces they're not the sort of place where this could ever happen because you always have two educators in a room etc could you talk a bit about yeah I well, look, there are at least there are a few things going on there. The first is that uh, unlike schools, 
early childhood education um, and care centres tend to have a much smaller staff uh, and tend to have, uh, unless they're, you know, a large organisation, they tend to have um, fewer supports in a management level. So, so you may have um, staff who are doing the recruiting, hiring and training who just don't have the level of expertise that you might find in large, larger organisations or, or education settings like primary and secondary schools. So um, I think that's the first thing that we need to consider. What kind of um, training are we providing in recruiting um, practices and, uh, and training practices to, um, to directors, particularly of, of independent small spaces. Um, and, uh, and then how are we, probably the more complex issue is when we think about early childhood education, we do tend to, perceive it from this really nurturing space. And a lot of people who work in, um, in early childhood education are doing so because they're really passionate about creating positive childhoods. And, and so we can kind of have this naivety about the um, thinking that everybody is there for the same um, drive and passion and reason. For sure. Do you think, um, I know that um, we had peripheral contact with the centre where a perpetrator was um, caught ourselves and we wrote um, a, an article about um, some of the impacts of that and uh, the centre actually contacted um, the editor of that publication and said how relieved they were that someone understood what it was like for them and that essentially they weren't um, naive that um, they had in fact been more or less groomed in the same way yeah. as the perpetrator groomed the ch children and their parents. Can you talk a bit about the way that perpetrators do groom other adults? Absolutely. So when you're talking about um, individuals whose intention is to uh, abuse children in a sexual manner. Uh, they, the typical grooming that occurs is that they will enter into a community or enter into a workforce and, uh, and groom the adults in that place first. So before they uh, start grooming a child, uh, they spend quite a considerable time in building an impeccable reputation with the adults they become the most loved, the most useful, the most thoughtful, the most caring, the most fun, uh, until they have a deep knowing that the adults have dropped their guard. And it's only once the adults have dropped their guard that they'll start grooming individual children. Is there anything that individuals like what how can individuals find out more about grooming behavior of adults uh well uh, it it is essential that everyone in early childhood education do professional development uh on childhood sexual abuse and the prevention of childhood sexual abuse and that uh that professional development should also be talking about grooming and uh 
and not only how to recognize grooming, but also how to intercept it as well. Because once we have a relationship with someone who we then have a feeling of discomfort that they may be grooming a child, it can be really, really difficult to intercept that behavior. Um, we can be so quick to say that if a stranger was harming a child or someone we didn't have a relationship was harming a child, we would act immediately with great surety. But, uh, but when we have a, a, a personal relationship with somebody, whether that's as a loved colleague or a family member, uh, and we are, we are observing behavior that is making us feel uncomfortable, but we can't definitively say that there is abuse occurring, it can take a lot of courage to challenge that behavior and intercept that behavior. So educators, um, teachers, directors need to be supported in actually having the skills to identify and, uh, and challenge grooming behavior. Is um, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that um, the uh, professional development that educators have to undertake around protecting children does not go far enough and it's almost become a bit of a cursory thing of, oh, yeah, I've got to get my new first aid, I've got to do my child protection, I've got to do... Is there... But mandatory reporting training is very, very different to comprehensive um, body safety or protective behaviours, uh, professional learning. Mandatory reporting training will, uh, will teach you how to document how to report, who to report, chains of command, uh, you know, all of the, the legal um, requirements that educators have. But actually what you want is something much more comprehensive than that that will talk about the complexities. Um, so the children who are most at risk, uh, being able to talk about that from, uh, from an approach that takes into consideration um, culture, disability, uh, uh, language skills, faith, uh, so children who are at risk. Um, economic security. Economic security, all of those things. Um, children who are already within the child protection system and how to support those. The complexity of when there is um, parenting orders in place and, and one of the uh, adults that the child is mandated to spend time with is an unsafe person for the child. It can, it, it's a really, really complex area and, uh, and the training needs to reflect that and be adapted for the community that, um, you know, that's being represented in that uh, centre or kindergarten. Deanne, whenever I speak about this with educators and I talk about the actual statistics of... Mm -hmm how many children within their centre mm. will be abused, you know, as a child by the time they're 15 or by the time they're 18. Mm. They're always quite shocked. Yep. Have you got any statistics that you can share with us right now? Yes, of course. And, of course, um, different, different studies will show you different things. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that when I talk about statistics um, in a moment, we're not just talking about physical contact offending. Uh, we need to start looking at childhood sexual abuse as uh, 
as something broader than that. Um, increasingly, we're hearing about um, children being forced to watch pornography with an adult, um, and that is sexual abuse, even though there's no contact offending occurring in that space. Uh, but essentially, we're talking about one in five children. So one in five children will experience childhood sexual abuse before they turn um, 18 years old. Uh, if we break that down by gender, because sometimes we can forget boys in this space, that is one in three girls and one in seven boys. I think more concerning, well, you know, equally concerning is that um, when you have a look at children under six, we're talking about one in 12 girls being abused before the age of six years old. So when we start talking about those statistics, it, it, you can no longer deny that this is uh, an issue that has to be addressed in early childhood education and care. So if you've got 48 children in your centre, 48 girls in your centre, four of them. Mm -hmm. Four of them will have yep. been subject to this before the age of six. Yes. Okay. Um, is Where can people access the sort of training that they need? Uh, well, we at Body Safety Australia deliver professional development, both in person and online as well. So it's available uh, all over Australia, as well as in remote and regional um, areas. Uh, but if people are looking at, um, and if somebody's in Victoria, uh, they are eligible for uh, school readiness funding for our professional development. Uh, if somebody is looking at a different provider, which is absolutely great because there are, you know, a number of great providers in Australia, uh, it's a matter of looking at whether, um, you know, whether it goes beyond stranger danger and the no-go tell response into, uh, you know, much more complex areas. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to provide, uh, you know, what makes the basis of, you know, comprehensive protective behaviours training. It, with, um, we know that um, the current uh, Regular consultation regulatory impact statement is looking at the ways that the outcomes of the Royal Commission um, are, are going to need to be put into education and care centres. Mm -hmm. Have you got any thoughts about how that should occur? Or well, I think you know we we in Victoria. Uh, prior to the Royal Commission had the Betrayal of Trust Inquiry. And from that, we had the Child Safe Standards, which are mandatory in Victoria, uh, which are very similar to the national principles for child safe organisations, um, which are you know, obviously national, but not mandated, uh, which calls for the participation and empowerment of children. So I think that this is a really important place to start, but in Victoria, uh, we're also mandated, there's a ministerial order from the education minister that says that uh, that this must be taught in education settings. And, uh, I, you know, I do believe really strongly that that needs to be mandated federally. Is there... Um, are, do, to the best of your knowledge, do all states have um, different... 
requirements for organisations to become child safe? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it varies dramatically state to state. Even when you're talking about mandatory reporting training, the requirement and the frequency of uh, updating that requirement differs state to state. Um, so at the moment, the national principles, principles for child safe organisations are not mandatory. Uh, and different states are starting to, to look at that and starting to implement it. But we could be years away from that. And so when we work, because we work uh, in New South Wales and Queensland, as well as Victoria, and when we work in other states, we do realise how fortunate we've been to, to have um, had this as mandatory so early when yeah when, of course victoria's ahead of the yeah, board this. <laughs> you guys always are <laughs> so, when, when we started in 2015 lisa uh the vast majority of inquiries that we had from schools and early childhood education settings were because there had been an incident so they were reactive responses uh from teachers and educators who were, you know, very concerned about the welfare of children and wanted to, you know, to, to put something in place after something had occurred. And that is still the case in New South Wales and Queensland, where that's the majority of inquiries that we receive. However, in Victoria, the majority of our inquiries now are proactive. So, so um, schools and education settings, seeing this as something that just needs to be delivered, it's part of their curriculum, it's part of wellbeing, uh, it's delivered to the children, it's delivered to the parents and guardians, and professional development is uh, not only provided, but updated regularly as well. That's brilliant. Mm. Let's hope the other states catch up. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that, you know, if directors are listening to this and thinking it's something that they'd like to learn more, mm. one of the things that I did that was absolutely chilling was read um, the Royal Commission report into um, an out-of-school hours care service um, in mm. New South Wales where a perpetrator was employed and read through the evidence of that chapter. It's not a particularly long chapter, but it showed things like how the pressures of someone's day-to-day -day work made them drop the ball in things like reference checking yeah. or the need to get staff on um, meant that that wasn't given as much priority as it could have been. And the person, of course, had overseas experience, et cetera, and had in fact been, you know, um, terminated from an overseas position because of concerns. And if that had come out, it would have been different. But it was also quite chilling because for the young woman who was cross-examined, you know, like several people in the organisation was, were, but the young woman that was cross-examined, looking back over your behaviours when something like this has happened in your service, 
when you see multiple failures that are caused by institutional responses, but also your own inability or your own mistakes in your job, Mm. it's very scary to think that you may have to go over what you've done in your job to a court of law in some way. And I think that we can often learn about the importance of things that we look at as a routine, like policies and training and, um, you know, implementing those policies as a bit of a tick box exercise. But when something like this comes out, it gives it a lot more gravitas. I think, Lisa, that we need to actually strip it back further from that because I hear uh, a lot of leaders um, talking about kind of covering their ass, you know, like what do we have to do to cover our ass? (laughs) (laughs) And... um, and I think that we need to strip it back and, and say, how do we create child-safe communities? Uh, because if we create child-safe communities, there is no need to cover our asses, yeah? Yep. So, so when we are doing our policies, when we are doing our codes of conduct, not have we ticked all of the boxes, but actually have we consulted with the children and have we consulted with all of the staff, including our casuals, and have we consulted with the parents and guardians and, you know, and really, like, thought deeply about, um, about what it looks like to, to be safe and free to learn and make friends and explore in this environment. Um, and that can be really as simple as providing... Uh, the kindergarten or preschool age children with a map of the centre and having them colour in, you know, the the physical spaces where they feel happiest or physical spaces where perhaps they feel uncertain or unsafe and looking for patterns in that. So (laughs) I say this all the time, but talk to the children. (laughs) True. (laughs) One of the things that I always found that was just fascinated me was just that how much the simple concept of putting into your recruitment ads that you're a child safe organisation and having a few posters around your centre saying that, how that can be a deterrent to someone. And that's something that is so, such a simple thing to do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's putting people on notice. And when we're speaking with parents and guardians, we say the same thing about, you know, their home. So if they develop their own body safety rules, um, you know, popping those up on the fridge so that visitors to the home actually know that this is something that's talked about openly and, uh, and you're on notice, you know, if you, uh, if you break those boundaries, it will be addressed and yep. they are clearly stated. For sure. Um, what about, oh, I had a thought there and it's gone. What, um, yeah, let's, let's open up the big um, <laughs> nasty black box here. I was waiting for you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> do we not employ men in our centres? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> look, childhood sexual abuse is a gendered crime. That is a fact. 90 to 95% of people who perpetrate 
childhood sexual abuse are male. But that doesn't mean that 90 to 95% of men are child sex offenders. Yeah. That's a powerful way of putting it. (laughs) When we employ people, we need to look at behaviour. What I tend to see in early childhood education is men placed into one or of two categories. So this really binary approach to male educators and teachers. One is, oh my God, we're so lucky to have a guy. It's so amazing. We've got one male educator or three male educators. It's so good, particularly for the boys, particularly for the boys of single mums who need a strong male role model in their lives. But, but, you know, uh, let's let's put this on the table that this is actually a, a deeply held belief, um, and and so those men, often against their will, because you know the great male educators I know do not like to be put on a pedestal like that, uh, but they are put on a pedestal by the predominantly female staff and a lot of the parents. The other end, the you know, polarised end of that is that all male educators are there because they're predatory. We can't allow them to change babies' nappies. We can't allow them to work in the baby's room. We have to keep an eagle eye on them because why would a man want to work in this space except to gain access to children? Both of those attitudes are so unhelpful. And what we actually need to do is look at each individual Uh, each educator individually and go how are they doing are they attending all of the training that we're offering have they done their mandatory reporting training have they done their body safety professional learning Uh, are they um, setting clear boundaries and respecting clear boundaries uh, in child's bodily autonomy uh, are they becoming over familiar with families? Like what is the behavior? Just exactly the same way that we do with children, we need to do with our staff. What is the behavior that I'm observing, putting away my bias, whether it's pro-male educators or anti-male educators, put away my bias, what is the behavior that I'm observing? Now, when we bring it back to behavior, um, then we mitigate the risk. Yeah, because we're spotting grooming behaviour. We're allowing educators to grow their career and and form relationships and, you know, all of those things um, without missing things because we're holding bias. Why do you think, like, I understand... um, you know, uh, I understand that we, a lot of women in this sector are keen to get more men into the sector, but I don't understand the absolute fawning behaviour that happens around men in this sector and the fact that um, women, so many women can be so you know, eager to get more men in the sector and so positive about every male educator they've ever met. What do you think is the basis for that? Where does that come from? (laughs) 
<laughs> Lisa. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. There are really limiting gender stereotypes that, that permeate all of our workspaces, regardless of what um, industry or profession we work in, uh, that, that tell us certain messages. So, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard women educators say, oh, it's so great to work with with male educators because, you know, women are so catty, they're so oh, yes. they're so right. Um, men are so straightforward. These are, these are all tropes. This is, this is just internalised messaging that we've received and had reinforced to us over our lifetimes around masculinity and femininity. What actually distresses me most in this area is if we're holding these beliefs, then we're passing them on to the children. Um, and, and therefore, you know, we've got another generation of children who are growing up with limited gender stereotypes. And, you know, we've, we've got to do better than that. Yeah, and certainly it's not just a matter of not passing on um, existing gender stereotypes, but I actually believe it's part of every education care services function to dismantle the ones Absolutely. that are there, to dismantle the messages that children absorb, you know, in the toy aisles, watching television, watching their parents interact, watching etc. etc. There is you know, every child is going to be subject to so many gender stereotypes before the age of two yeah. that if we're not dismantling that, then we're not doing our job to educate. But we can't dismantle children. it until we examine our own bias. And yeah, and that's, that's where we're, we seem to be having a lot of problems. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And... You know, if we do that work, it just actually benefits everybody. It means that, um, our, uh, ironically, our male educators are safer uh, because they're being taken on face value for the work that they're doing instead of being placed in, in one or two impossible boxes. Um, our, you know, female educators will probably progress in their careers um, in an equitable way. Um, and we actually create employment scenarios for transgender and non-binary um, educators that are, are safe and open as well. Okay, so let's look at um, some other things that have been happening in our country recently. And I'm talking about um, the calls that have come from, um, uh, you know, private school uh, girls primarily mm -hmm. for earlier age consent education yep um now i know <laughs> that like me you think that this actually consent education should actually be starting in our education and care centers absolutely can you expand on what you mean by that yep. and how how you know how we can go about it absolutely so firstly i'd like to um commend young women like um chanel contos who started the petition to have uh consent education mandatory in schools and taught at an early age um and uh the impeccable way in in which she's 
manage the media in this space, even whilst she's receiving thousands of disclosures from, from teenagers and, and young people. Um, you know, it must be a, a terrifically difficult position for her to be in. Um, for sure. So I'd just like to commend the young people who are speaking up and speaking out before I talk any further. Uh, I think in talking to the media, there is a lot of confusion about the difference between teaching sexual consent and non-sexual consent. And when people uh, don't understand the differentiation between sexual and non-sexual consent, and they hear that we're teaching consent in early childhood and care, they can become very concerned about um, whether we are sexualizing children early, whether we are um, uh, encouraging children to experiment sexually, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is uh, not letting them be children. <laughs> they don't need to know about that stuff now, Deanne. <laughs> yeah, except when you come back to the, the one in 12 girls who were sexually abused before the age of six, well, they know about it. Yeah. Yep. So we absolutely do need to be teaching it. Um, consent in early childhood is really simple and it, uh, it, it's not sexual in nature and it's practiced by educators and has been for decades and it's not news to um, educators and early childhood teachers. It, it is as simple as asking, would you like help taking, you know, I can see that you're struggling taking your jumper off, would you like help with that? I can see that you would like to hold my hand as we go out into the outdoor space. I'm actually really okay with you holding my hand. I'd like to hold your hand too. I can see that you want to sit on my lap while I'm reading a story. Actually, that's not okay for me right now. Uh, can you sit next to me? So you can see those last two examples I gave were actually about the educator, not about the child. Because when I said that early childhood professionals are really great in this Base, they're really great at respecting child's bodily autonomy, really great at checking in and going, would you like me to change your nappy or would you like Lisa to change your nappy? They're not so great about setting their own boundaries with children. And children need to be starting to understand not just their rights, but also their responsibilities. When we talk about who is... Uh, who is perpetrating childhood sexual abuse, it's actually adolescents in about 40% of cases that are sexually abusing young children. So we actually need to, and I know that this is horrific to think about when you think about the young children in your care, but we need to actually start saying, well, if some of these children are going to become 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds who enact sexual harm on other children intentionally, how do we prevent that? And that is by setting our own clear boundaries around our bodies as well. Is there anything else that, um, you know, is, is there ways that educators can learn about how to teach consent education? Obviously, you know, I'm sure you've got a course on it, but yeah. <laughs> if they wanted to do, for example, some reading about it. Uh, so, well, firstly, there, there are lots of great um, picture books that they can access for the children. Uh, and not all of those um, picture books are around um, 
unsafe touch, you know, sexual unsafe touch. There's a great one that's one of my favourites, which is called Don't Touch My Hair, uh, which um, is a great way to teach consent in a non-sexual way. Um, there are, where would they start to do reading? That's a really good question, Lisa. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. But I know that some people, some people yeah. do prefer to, to do yeah. private research about these topics rather than front up to a course. Yeah, so, yeah, um, that's fine. And, and I think, uh, you know, in, in thinking about that, there are a lot of academic studies that they can access. Um, and if, if they are looking for a place to start, um, Kerri-Ann Walsh, Professor Kerri-Ann Walsh in Queensland um, is a great place to start. And then from there, they'd be able to draw a lot of um, studies from the papers that she writes that she references. Uh, I don't... I actually, okay, so there's a hole in the market. Obviously, you and I have to yeah, fill that hole. <laughs> I think so. I'm just going, what is that? No, I don't. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Great okay, well, that's something we can think about. <laughs> um, what about, uh, you know, educators that are having to um, work with children in their services that they know have been um, uh, subject to childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, is there, you know, like what, what, what's important in that yeah. sphere? Um, thank you. That's a great question. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a really tricky space. Um, the first thing that I would say is that if they haven't already done training on trauma and trauma-informed practice um, and trauma healing practice, then they get to that straight away. So if you know they might look want to look at um, circle of security or Berry Streets um, training, and uh, and start looking at trauma-informed care for those children. Um, children who have been sexually abused can display behaviours that if we are unaware of how trauma presents itself, um, can, can look like challenging behaviours that need to be addressed, yeah? Yep. <laughs> Rather than communication of a deep need for healing. Um, so the first thing that I would do is, uh, it, you know, is some kind of trauma-informed um, professional learning. Uh, and for everybody in the centre, not just for the key educator. Um, that, that is the first thing that I would do. And uh, the, um, the other thing is, you know, connecting that child and the child's caregivers with services uh, as soon as Possible. And this is beyond mandatory reporting. This is about knowing that childhood sexual abuse can uh, have deep lifelong impacts around mental health, around physical health, around educational outcomes, around uh, heightened risk taking in adolescence and young adulthood. And I'm talking drugs, alcohol, uh, other, uh, you know, risky behaviours. 
But what we know is if, um, and, and the average age of, um, the average time it takes a child to disclose is 20, 25 years. What we know is that if we wrap services around that child as soon as possible, we provide, um, you know, psychological support, uh, play therapy, all of those things as soon as possible, the outcomes for that child almost return to pre-abuse levels. So That's pretty amazing. It is, it is absolutely amazing. Um, the other thing in that, Lisa, is that um, picking up changes in behaviour uh, as soon as possible because what I actually see is perhaps a child is being abused, we notice a change in their behaviour, we document changes in their behaviour, you know, we, we try and work out what's occurred in the child's life and if we come up with nothing, that behaviour then becomes personality, if that makes sense. So we might see a big change, say if you're a kindergarten teacher and you're with the four-year-old group, you might see a big change in child's behaviour halfway through the, uh, the school year. And if that child then goes to school with that behaviour, none of the teachers working with that child have seen that child pre-abuse behaviour. So that becomes the child's personality which means that the uh, chances of um, that being picked up just decrease dramatically. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the um, final things I'd like to talk about, because we acknowledge it, you know, in child protection training, et cetera, but that because we are a gendered workforce, we are working with a lot of women who have been abused as children themselves or have been abused as adults. How do we deal, need to deal with that in the sector? I think that there's a lot more that we can do and I know that funding is a huge issue, um, uh, but absolutely when I run professional development, I know that there are often women in the room who are survivors themselves, who have supported uh, friends, family members uh, in their disclosure uh, and the, um, their concerns about delivering the content are, um, you know, are real because it brings up a whole range of things um, for them. So providing some level of you know, counselling care, whether it's an EAP or whatever it might be for staff um, is really important, but not just um, for those who might be survivors. What I actually find, particularly when I work in regional or rural areas, is that in some areas, um, the disclosures mount up and the educators take that on board and uh absolute professionals in their, particularly in small communities, in um, the confidentiality of the child, but they have no outlet for discussing the vicarious trauma, the harm to themselves, overhearing um, year after year after years, the, the choices that people make to hurt children. And I think that we need to start acknowledging um, that, that, you know, and I, I know that you talk about this all the time. It's more than just wiping, you know, runny noses and bums. 
Um, <laughs> but, but actually there are some really very, very real things that, that early childhood educators do, uh, and not just in sexual abuse, but in neglect, in physical abuse, um, in understanding that, you know, children are living with... Um, with adults who might be drug or alcohol dependent and, you know, and their needs, you know, and, and they might be wrapped in chaos instead of love and the educators are the stable adults in their lives. Um, we need to look after them. They're great educators. We need to take care of them. Yeah, and the, unfortunately there is so little money around yep. to ensure that those that are working with, you know, a, a large number of children um, with those kind of issues can get extra support. One of the things I'd also like to point out, though, is that the more, and I'm sure that we're all aware of this in theory, but we forget about it in terms of our workmates, is that the more this stuff hits the news, the more um, individuals will be reacting to those stories of disclosure yeah. or the stories of rape in Parliament House or whatever yeah. particular issues happens. And that often it can throw people for days and days yeah. before they can recover from a fresh onslaught of facts. Yeah. And we need to be aware if people are you know, going down themselves because of the media attention on particular cases. And that can be hard because, you know, there's no expectation that somebody um, uh, must disclose in order to receive support, right? Um, so you may have educators who are deeply impacted by what's in the media but haven't disclosed to their colleagues and, and nor should they have to disclose to their colleagues yep, that they're um, In uh, professional learning, we talk not about self-care but about community care. I think self-care is a very fraught field and, uh, you know... Yep. <laughs> and, and I know that when we're talking about uh, the professionals in early childhood education and care, that they're caregivers at work and many of them are caregivers at home as well, either to young children or elderly adults or family members with a disability. And so they are caring, you know, 24 hours a day, basically. Uh, and so if, if you go in and you talk about self-care to people who actually have no space or, um, or resources to, to practice any kind of self-care. Yeah, it just um, becomes it, another it, thing on the to-do yeah. list. And it can leave somebody feeling very devastated and very lonely. So we actually talk about community care. So, you know, taking a look around your community and, and having a look at the people who uh, don't have the capacity to practice self-care at that particular point in time um, and, and asking yourselves as a cohort um, of colleagues what can, what can you do you know as a community to care for that person or to give them some space to care for themselves um, and I think that that's a much more powerful way of looking at it uh, and and I have had um, a beautiful short story for you in a school where um, where that was the case for one particular teacher and uh, her colleagues offered to take her yard duty for a month so that she could actually go to the park at lunchtime and read a book. Oh, what a beautiful idea. Yeah. Yeah, and they just shared it between themselves. 
That's a very nice thing. Hmm. Deanne, thank you for talking to us today. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the educators and teachers that listen to our podcast? No, I just would like to thank you for bringing up this topic. I think it's really important, but um, it can be really hard to start this conversation. Um, and I think for the educators, teachers, directors who are listening, it can be really difficult to start that journey because of your fear of um, pushback perhaps from the parent community. But in our experience, the parents are actually super, super grateful that somebody is going to support them and give them the skills to have these conversations with their children. So good luck with it. <laughs> Great. Okay, thank you very much. And if people want to get in contact with Deanne, it's through Body Safety Australia. Google it and it will come up. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.